Uh, last week we were out of our study of Second Timothy, and so I'd like to uh, briefly touch on three one through nine by way of summary, so that we can see the weight that, that Paul is is coming in here because we seem to lose it a little bit if we pick up just in verse ten through fifteen, which is what we'll spend the majority of our time on today. But remember that as Paul opened up chapter 3, he effectively said, look, it's going to be bad, it's going to be bad all over, but it's especially going to be bad inside the church because people are going to be, and he enters up on this whole list of things that describe all the people you don't want to be friends with. They said that these people are going to love themselves, they're going to love money, they're going to love pleasure. Effectively, Paul is arguing that these people are going to be three things. They're going to be narcissistic, materialistic, and hedonistic. They're going to say, what brings me the most pleasure because I am at the top of this pyramid of my own religion. But the sad thing is when he describes the people in in this list, he's not looking at his surrounding community and saying, well, who do I bump into at Tamales? And and who do I bump into at, at Burger King? Or who do I see at Brahms? Or who do I encounter in my neighborhood? When he points at the people in this list, he's saying, these are the people in your church. He's saying the last days will be, you'll know that they're difficult and they will be difficult because you're going to have people in your church that are not true converts to Christianity, but instead they typify the characteristics of the people in this list. Man, it is a hard list that he gives us. So he runs through this and he describes all of it and he comes into verse 10, which is where we'll pick up today. Turning back to Timothy, he says, you, however, have followed my teaching my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, as Paul picks up this list, likely Timothy, functioning there as a pastor for that church in Ephesus, is somewhat shocked as he reads this description of things. He's somewhat shocked and and really put back as he reads this list. And you can imagine that week after week as he comes into the body and he's ministering to these people, people's faces are popping up in his mind as Paul's running down this list. And he said, look, people will be lovers of self. And he sees their faces popping up. So people will be lovers of money. He remembers conversations he's had. People won't love good, but they're going to love evil. And he remembers being in their homes. And it drives in this deep sense of, in some sense, frustration, but at the same time, anger and resentment. These people that he's pouring out his life to, these people he's seeking to minister to, they're, they're selfish. And in fact, some of the people there in Ephesus, they aren't even Christians. But they're imposters. And so Paul turns in, in verse 10, he says, look, 
this is what they are doing. This is who they are. But Timothy, let me encourage you. And he says the simple phrase, he says, you, however, have followed. We see that all of these other people, they followed their own interests, their, their lusts of the flesh. They followed their own desires. They've done everything that seemed right to them, that seemed fit to them. They've set themselves up as the, the head of their own religious system and, and really just this thin veneer of Christianity. But when he turns his attention to Timothy, he pivots. He says, this is what they did. Timothy, but you have followed. Now Paul's use of this word, it, it, it describes not just blind adherence, but it, it, it really shows us and gives us insight into this discipler mentality that Paul is working to disciple Timothy, that he is pouring out his life to Timothy, that as a mentor and a mentee, Timothy has dutifully followed, he has seeked to mold and shape his life in conformity with those things he's seen in Paul's life. And we remember that Paul elsewhere has called people. He said, look, imitate me as I imitate Christ Jesus. And that is a, a hard thing. I can't imagine saying to somebody, look, try and be like me because I'm trying so hard to be like Jesus that in trying to be like me, you're going to find yourself becoming more and more like Jesus. Well, Paul lists some specific things that Timothy has followed. He starts off, he says, you, however, have followed my teaching. you recognize that when Paul picks up Timothy around about Acts 16, and they start traveling around, and, and they're going from town to town, and he sees Paul persecuting, and he hears Paul teaching, Timothy begins to pick up on all the things. He is putting together and understanding his theology. Timothy has been readily acquainted with the Old Testament, but Paul is, is showing him, is reading back those things in the Old Testament with a hermeneutical key, this understanding of Christ. See, if you were to open up your Old Testament and you flip through it and you get to the end, but you haven't been reading it with a careful understanding that everything in there is pointing to Jesus, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss it. You're going to be well-informed. You're going to certainly have a lot of time on your hands if you're going to read the whole thing, but you're going to miss it if you haven't been reading it from the perspective of all of these things are pointing at their fulfillment in Jesus. Paul tells Timothy, look, you followed my teaching. He said, you followed my conduct, my aim in life. That as Paul went around and he was reviled, that as he was beaten, that as he was stoned, that as he suffered shipwreck and hunger, that of all these terrible things that have happened to him, Timothy saw the way Paul responded in the midst of pressure. He saw over and over again Paul's conduct before the lost, before the saved. He got to experience what it was like when Paul called Peter out on sin. I mean, can you imagine Peter, who's always quick with words and sometimes doesn't think through them very well before he says them? But he's the pillar of the church. Timothy gets to experience and, and probably some of these inner wranglings in Paul's mind of how exactly do I approach Peter with this thing he's doing wrong? He got to see Paul's conduct. He got to see the aim and trajectory of his life, which is to know Christ and to make him known. He got to see Paul labor with significant damage to his own body, to himself, for the advance of the gospel. 
He got to see Paul go without sleep, without food, and at great danger for the advance of the gospel. He says, his faith. Now Paul writes over and over again about the testing of faith. Timothy got a first row seat to the testing of Paul's faith, to its strengthening, all the various encounters, the trials, and the sufferings that Paul went through. Now look at this. He says that you have also followed my patience, my love, and my steadfastness. Now, patience is is, is really this idea of of time takes a little while to pass. And Paul wanted to see all of these things come to pass right away, did he not? He was anxious to travel to other cities. He was anxious to see other people come to know the gospel. And so Paul, in some sense, had to be patient because of these things. And Timothy finally understood exactly what that meant as he worked with a group of people there in Ephesus. It's one thing to be patient when you're standing on the sidelines, but it's a completely other thing to be patient when you're working with a group of people and you're trying to get them to come into conformity with the gospel. Timothy understood. He reflected on Paul's writings to all of these churches, calling them into fidelity with the gospel. He knew what it was to be patient. Paul's love for all people, Timothy had seen that especially those who return insult to an extension of love. And Paul writes, he says, my steadfastness. See, this is very different from the patience he described earlier. This steadfastness is more a description of, of how Paul patiently endured when people would return insult to him, when people would drive him from town to town, when schisms and, and factions were formed in the church, when churches went errant directions, Paul stayed the course, and Timothy saw that in his life, and Timothy was making those same things evident in his own. Now look in verse 11. He says, look, you followed my persecutions and my sufferings. And he lists three examples from us. Let's quickly look over to Acts. If you flip over to Acts 13... In Acts 13, 14 through 52, we pick up what happens to Paul in Antioch. Well, some great things are happening there in Antioch. Paul is there and he is, has this great speech. He starts it off in verse 16. He says, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And he begins to reveal how God has been at work. Starts with Moses and he works his way up and he describes all the ways that God has been at work bringing men and women into an understanding of who he is. Bringing them into an understanding of the gospel. We find out that some people had ill intent for Paul and so he moves on and we see Paul move into Iconium. And we see that in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 14. It says, now at Iconium they entered into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But look what happened. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And we find out that a plan is hatched to stone Paul and Barnabas. Verse 5, when an attempt was made by both Jews and Gentiles with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and they fled. Lastly, we read of Paul and Lystra. Now, in Lystra, some truly amazing things happen. 
The people he, he frustrated in Antioch, the people he further aggravated in Iconium, they have come together and they form this group that stands for one thing and one thing only, the punishment, the death of Paul. So Paul goes out and he's, he's preaching and he's teaching again and people are coming to faith. We see this one with his, his feet lame and Paul heals him and Paul is out and the gospel is, is bringing men and women into a knowledge of the truth. But in verse 19, he says, But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. See, Paul knew what it was to suffer, to be persecuted. He reminds Timothy, and recognize that Timothy is from around that area. That ultimately when Paul is there in Lystra and he's preaching and he's teaching and they get this whole crowd of people all just lathered, lathered up and, and just foaming at the mouth because they're so bent on bringing damage to Paul that they grab him and they throw him down on the ground. You can imagine they're kicking him and they're driving him toward the city gates and then they pick up stones. They pick up large stones and they begin to hurl them. And they're not aiming at his legs. They're not aiming at his stomach. They're aiming for his head. They're seeking to take it off by the force of these stones. And Paul is laying there, bloodied, beaten, and almost lifeless. They think he's dead. If you're going to stone someone, you don't, you don't stop when they say, Look, it's enough. I've learned my lesson. I won't come back in here again. Please just, just let me go. You see, they don't stop until they think you're dead. That's the whole purpose. They're not seeking to punish him. They're seeking to kill him. So we find Paul laying outside the city, lifeless, and the disciples gather around him. And what happens? The text tells us that he rose up and entered the city again. Paul knew what it was to suffer. He knew what it was to be persecuted. And Timothy had been able to travel around with him and hear of this account and many more, I'm sure. But look at Paul's philosophy. Look at his understanding of how these things have worked out. Paul says, which persecutions I endured, which persecutions I stood strong against, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. He's quoting Psalm 34. See, Paul has this understanding that the eyes of God are upon the righteous, that God will seek to restore, that he will deliver the righteous one. Paul recognizes then each and every one of those accounts that God was working to restore him, that God was working to rescue him. And Paul recognizes that even as he writes from a Roman prison cell, You'll remember back to the first of the letter, Paul said that he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He sees his present situation and suffering not as a representation of the power and might of the Roman government, but as an exercise of the will of God for his life, so that God might be glorified, so that others might come to know who he is. Now he goes on, and he has this word for Timothy in verse 12. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, let's, let's flip over to John 15 and see what Jesus has to say about this. John 15 and verses 18 through 21, 
Jesus, speaking to the disciples, said, If the world hates you, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you. A servant is not above his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. We recognize that that all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And we read this, and, and your mind is, is maybe, maybe you're thinking of the, the pastor in Iran, Pastor Saeed, who sits in prison. And you think, but I'm in, I'm in Greenville, Texas. Man, I, I am in the Bible Belt. I'm the little metal thing that, that comes into the buckle. That's, that's, that's where I am. And you think, oh man, but I've heard about, about Christians being martyred in Pakistan or in India or in Iraq or in Saudi Arabia. And, and, but Matt, remember, I work at Brookshire's here in Greenville. My, my kids are in Greenville Independent School District. My, my kids go to GCS. I, I have no idea what persecution is. I have no idea how to understand this. For me, it is this thing that is wholly removed from my context. How does this have anything to say to me? Because I don't feel persecution. I don't feel suffering. Just begin to ask yourself, is the text true? What is he trying to communicate to us there? What does this text say to us? But let's look at it carefully. He says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. First, we recognize that it's not a passing desire, that it is a continual desire met out in the living of our lives. See, it's not that when you came to be saved and so... Uh, Take my wife, for example. When Valerie came to be saved, she desired to live a godly life. And in that instant, it was passing, it was fleeting, and she went on to live the rest of her life with no desire. I'm so sorry. I will cook lunch. But it is more of the fact that she has continued to desire, she has continued to live this godly life. And inasmuch as she does that, as she faces any and every decision with the steadfast position of choosing to live a godly life, she will encounter persecution. And you say, well, that's me. That's the way I'm living my life, and I still don't see this persecution you're talking about. Where is it? You know, I thought about this a lot this week. And Valerie and I were missionaries, and I guess you could say to a certain degree we encountered some overt persecution. But most persecution comes for us in our context When somebody comes to you and they sin against you, they openly move against you. Whether it's your spouse, whether it's your children, whether it's somebody at work, and you're faced with a choice. How do I respond to the things that they've done to me? How do I respond to the things they've said to me? Man, there's this flesh, this gut-level, visceral thing that you just want, or if you're anything like me, I just want to blast them. I just want to see them brought low. I just want to see, you know, 
much come from my words in their minds. But is that a godly response? Is, is, is that a godly response? What about when we, hear pers- or when we hear coworkers voice something that is so completely opposed to the gospel? And in our mind it clicks and we think, well, <laughs> that's clearly not right. But then that voice inside us says, you better just keep your mouth shut. I'll just remember to pray for them tonight. You better just keep your mouth shut. Nobody likes to stir up controversy in the workplace. I don't want to be shunned at the water cooler. I want to, be, I want to go over to their house and I'm really in this for the long haul. You see, because I'm working on this five-year plan of relational evangelism. In phase one, I'm still working on it. And it's be their friend and be their buddy. And they haven't invited me to their house or to go skiing or to go swimming or, or really even to lunch yet. But I, I think that's kind of one of those things that happens after we go skiing. And so we don't say anything. You want to see persecution show up in your life? Everybody looks down. You want to live a godly life? You want to live a life that's honoring to God? Persecution's going to show up. You want to live a life that's honoring to God? You want to let the the truth that Paul reveals to Timothy here be evident in your life? I guarantee you, I make this solemn promise to you, that if you choose to encounter each and every one of those things, that if someone offers slander back to you, if you don't return it, if instead you allow the gospel to be the guiding principle of your life, and you choose to live a godly response, if that's your desire and it's met out in the way you live your life, you will be persecuted. You're not going to go to prison. Nobody's going to beat you. Very few people will even know that if you don't stand up for the gospel, if you choose not to live a godly life, but God knows, he sees your heart, he sees each and every one of those instances and he recognizes all of those times we choose not to live a godly life, not to respond in a godly way, but instead either to sit in silence and say nothing or to respond in this fleshly response. We see Peter writing to the churches in Diaspora in chapter three and verse nine offers us these words. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Peter's understanding for us is that in the midst of all those things, when people are turning against you, when they're, when they're sending slams your way, when they're saying all these things against you, what is your response? Your response is to turn and to bless them. Because in turning to bless them and praying for them and not having this this follow through from this gut level visceral reaction, you're choosing to live a godly life. You want to avoid any persecution in your life? It's a whole lot easier than not sharing the gospel in a Muslim country. You want to keep persecution from your life? Sit there and say nothing. You want to keep persecution from your life? Don't head down the path of living a godly life. Because the path of obedience, of living a godly life, is one of sorrow, and it is one of persecution, and it's one of great difficulty. But this is the kicker. If you name Jesus as Lord and Savior, it's the only path for you. 
There is no other. To walk another path, to choose another course, to head another way, is to follow that list of traits given in one through nine. It's to be a lover of self. It's to value your own pleasure and your comfort over obedience to Jesus Christ. And that is a hard word. And that is something that we daily need to struggle with. We daily need to, to ask ourselves and go back and evaluate those answers that we've given, the ways we've responded and say, God, did I choose to live a godly life for you today at work, at home, to my spouse? And it's easy when people are responding well to us, but it is especially difficult when they're not. When you're fighting with your spouse, when your children are terrible, when you really wish your boss would just find somewhere else to be. Are you choosing to live a godly life? Look what Paul writes in verse 13. He says, all the while that this is going on, all the while that Christians are desiring to live a godly life and in fact doing so, all the while that these things are transpiring, there are evil people and imposters and these jokers are going from bad to worse, being deceived and in fact deceiving. Now you remember that Paul, as he wrote about uh, those in this list from 3, 1 through 9, said that there were those there who were seeking to, to do awful things. And see in verse 5, we says, it says that they have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. We see in verse 5 that as Paul wrote about these people, he said, look, they have this thin veneer, this guise of godliness. There is this, this outward action where they don't actually want people to know that they are overt heretics. And so if, if D is an absolute heretic, he is just an awful, awful person, and he is in this church, he's going to have a thin veneer of godliness. It's just a little bit like hairspray, but it goes over his whole body. He's going to have this thin veneer of, godless, of godliness. But in reality, he's lost. And that's exactly what these people are. And Paul writes to Timothy, and he says that these people who have this thin veneer, they're going from bad to worst, that they are nothing more than imposters. They aren't true Christians. They are those who would seek to deceive. He says they are deceiving, and they are actually being deceived. You'll remember that as we went through, he said that these, these men, some of, some of these men in this list, they sneak into women's households, and they try and take them captive by their words. And they try and hold them. He says, look, some of the people in this, they are actively seeking to deceive. They're seeking to lead you away from Christianity. They're seeking to lead you down a different path. But in as much as they are doing that, they too are being deceived. You see, they're not the masters of their own message. They're not the, the one at the top of their pyramid. Although they believe they're seeking to serve themselves, they are in fact serving Satan. We see it in verse 26 of chapter 2. And he said, look, you need to pray for these people. Some of them may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. We find out that some of these imposters, some of these evildoers, they're doing nothing more than the work of Satan. They're seeking to deceive, but in fact, they were the ones who were first deceived. And the further they go and the more they spread their message, the more difficult we realize it is for them to actually see truth. Look what he does in verse 14. He comes back to Timothy. He says, look, this is what they're going to do. But as for you, 
continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Paul comes back to Timothy and he says, look, Timothy, it is so important Not that you find some new way of learning, not that you discover some new truth, but that you remain in the thing that you've learned. He says you continue, and he's describing this idea back to continual, progressive, day in and day out. You need to continue in it. What you've learned, what has he learned? He's learned those things that Paul has taught him. What has he become firmly convinced or what has he firmly believed in? That Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And as Paul states and we all echo that I am chief among them. He tells him, he says, that you need to know who you learned it from. From whom you learned it. Now this is interesting. You see, Timothy hasn't just learned from Paul, has he? See, because Paul made reference in chapter 1 and verse 5 to Timothy's own lineage of faith. Timothy was raised in a household with a believing mother and a non-believing father. He had this, this lineage of faith that started with his grandmother and it went to his mother and it finally found its end in him. And so they are spent and they're pouring out their energy seeking to grow up Timothy in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Along comes Paul and he is pouring himself out into Timothy. He's saying, look, follow me. See Jesus in me. Follow those things in me which are a reflection of him. He says you need to know from whom you learned it. We also recognize that, that Christ is the one instructing, that Christ is the one teaching. Because as Timothy encounters the word, as he encounters the Bible, he is reading Jesus from the text. Jesus is speaking from the text to Timothy. Now look what Paul does in 15. He reminds Timothy of the length of his faith. He says, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. See, Timothy, as he was growing up, Lois and Eunice are pouring out the Old Testament text to him. Stay with me. Lois and Eunice are pouring out the Old Testament text to him. They're opening up the Psalms. They're opening up the prophets. And they're saying, read this, understand this, memorize this. Now, the interesting thing is that that word used there in the Greek, brephos, can either mean a child in the womb, it can mean a young child, or in the case of what is likely for Timothy, it's referring to somebody who's five years old. See, they're rabbinic writings to let us know that when a child hit five, they begin to be instructed in the Old Testament text. There was a, a rigorous uh, course of study, and it, it started at age five. But look what Paul is writing here. He's saying, look, your whole life, you've been surrounded by the Holy Scriptures, by these holy writings. Your whole life, you've had the Word of God before you. Your whole life, it served as an instruction for you. You've been acquainted. You have known these sacred writings. But look what Jesus does with the Old Testament in Luke 24. Luke 24, 27, this is after the resurrection. Jesus is walking on the road with some of the disciples. And we find that that Jesus is, is explaining to them 
how all these things have been so. He says in verse 27, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see, Jesus is walking along with these two guys, and he says, Look, let me show you how Moses was preparing a ministry for me. He goes to the prophets, he says, let me tell you how Isaiah, when he was testifying on all these things and prophesying on all these things, was pointing at my coming. He was pointing at my dying. These things didn't happen by accident. I am the fulfillment of what God has sent to you. You need to see Jesus in the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus reads himself in there and awakens the disciples to an understanding that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. It's not an addition to it. He is not a new way to read it. He is the only way to read it. You see, it is with this special way of reading the Old Testament that we can understand the last half of verse 15. He says, These sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. See, Paul reminds Timothy of the bedrock of his faith rests on Jesus. At the beginning of end and end of Timothy's faith, it both starts with Jesus and it ends with Jesus. It is this understanding that as we read the text, we read Jesus out of it. And as we read the text, and as we understand the text, we want our lives to be in conformity to Jesus to the Jesus revealed in the scriptures. And the difficult thing for us is is we read the Bible. Whether you're doing a yearly Bible reading or the only time you read it is on Sunday morning when you come here, but when you read the Bible, when you open it up, when you lay it before you and your eyes lay hold of it, and Jesus is speaking from the text to you, he is calling you to live a life in conformity. He's calling you to surrender your will, to surrender your desires, to find yourself living out the things that he calls you to. And he offers us in this passage a litmus test of sorts. And so as you're reading these things out, the question that you should ask yourself is, am I desiring to live a godly life? Am I living a godly life? And it's not that persecutions are a a test of validation, Toward an absence of persecution reveals that you aren't in fact a Christian. But if you aren't desiring, if you aren't pursuing living a godly life, then you have to stop and ask yourself, why are you pursuing Christianity? Why are you pursuing Jesus? What point is there? If it's anything other than to find yourself living in conformity, If it's anything else, then then define yourself, seeking to make much of him. Then there's little wonder there's no persecution. See, the, the hinge is on that we need to desire to live this godly life, that we need to be living this godly life. That's what Paul calls Timothy to. And that's what this text calls each and every one of us to that as we read the text of the Bible, we would find Jesus, we would surrender our lives to him, and we would live the rest of our lives trying to glorify him through living godly lives. Let me pray for us.